All right, well, I invite you to open your Bibles today to the book of Colossians. We'll continue our short side study now that we've completed our study of 2 Peter. Get into the book of Colossians for some extra considerations, especially as it pertains to uh, application, certain characteristics that we are to express even while we endure, whether those endurances are responses from attacks from within or attacks from without. We are without excuse when it comes to putting on particular godly characteristics in our response. And so we don't want to find those lacking even though we face numerous challenges, no different, in many ways, no different uh, today as they were 2,000 years ago. So in Colossians chapter 3, our text will be starting from verse 12, and I will read through verse 17. So please follow along. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. So in this study, we have been exploring, as has already been mentioned, character, Christian character, character not only of the individual, but we want to say character collectively. Character that will be expressed in unity with oneness of mind in one accord amongst the church body. And so Colossians is a great way to explore that because as you can see just in this short text, uh, the Apostle Paul mentions numerous uh, character characteristics of what he calls the new man. Right? This goes back to verse 1 of this chapter where he says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, this newness is descriptive of this resurrection life, the blessings of this resurrection life that we share by virtue of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is his most important premise. None of what we read is remotely possible without being raised. It all begins with Christ and being in Him a new creation. And of course, in this, Paul is describing in a variety of ways, what a new creation looks like, what it resembles. He's describing, again, the character of the new man. And don't think of character so much as a painting in terms of resemblance, because this is not merely skin deep. We are not merely imitating. Think of character as an engraving, something that cuts deeply, something that is permanent, that can't merely be covered with another fresh coat. This is something that reaches deeply into the heart of the man who is in Christ, a, a man who has been lifted out of his rebellion and has been brought near to God and has clothed himself with the garments of grace. And so these are things that are not only characteristics, but they are things that equip us really for the work of the ministry, both inside the church and outside. It's Hebrews 13, verses 20-21 through 21 that says this, "...may God equip you with everything good 
so that you may do His will. So follow that there. Follow the logic, the very simple logic of the author there. How do we carry out God's will? By God equipping us with everything good. Everything good and necessary so we can do His will. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Christ Jesus to whom be the glory forever and ever. So God equips the new man for work so we can do His will. That doing God's will is standard operating procedure because we are alive in Christ and the Holy Spirit now fills us for that work. And so now we can explore through Colossians this character of the new man. And we began in verse 12 exploring what is called his position, right? This, this whole little mini-series is the new man, his position and pursuit. So we find ourselves at one time in a certain relationship to God through Christ, and that is a position of grace. That is spelled out in verse 12 where Paul says, you are those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Those three things are expressive of our position of grace, our position in Christ. And then, of course, from there is the pursuit. That is the pursuit of godliness. If you are positioned in grace, you will, through the power of the Holy Spirit, again, you will want to do this. I would hope that we don't do this begrudgingly all the time, but that we really pursue and chase after these things, that we desire them for us and for our Christian brothers and sisters. And even by extension, having a heart for the lost so that they will come to be in a position of grace and also pursue godliness alongside other believers. So that's the second part of this is identifying your position of grace and then initiating a pursuit of godliness. So this pursuit of godliness is wrapped up in several different terms, many of which we've explored already. So if you draw your attention to verse 12 again, he says, remember, these are heart attitudes. These things are not merely surface. We're not merely copying something. These are supernaturally placed and developed Christian attitudes. The first, of course, is a heart of compassion, and then kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then he goes on in verse 13 to say that you also bear with one another and forgive each other. So we, we took last Lord's Day and really isolated this whole concept of forgiveness. That if you are not kind, if you are not compassionate, if you have no humility, gentleness, or patience, that is, if you have no clue regarding the forgiving work that God has done in you or done for you, you will also not forgive. If you are none of those things, you will not be forgiving. And so we stress the importance of forgiveness, that important hard attitude that extends grace and mercy when to the person who has offended you. So in all these things, we see the clothing of the inner man. We see them ready to gush out as a fountain of grace. But we also have to remember that going forward, that these things, none of these things work in isolation, as we'll see from this text. None of these virtues work in isolation. They're all connected to one another. And they inherently seek the good of others. And so, from that standpoint, we will move on in our text today. Today we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about love, because who doesn't love to talk about love? We're going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about the peace of Christ. So, love, peace, and then we're going to talk about thankfulness. I think that's really the cherry on top of this text, or this portion of the text. But these three things we will discuss today, and hopefully some some respectable depth and get an idea of how they work in the life of the church. So draw your attention, if you haven't already, to verse 14. Keeping in mind everything we have already gone over. Paul says this, 
Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So beyond all these things, putting on love. And so right away, we'll say that it's not Paul's main point to say, in saying beyond, that somehow love is superior in quality to these things. Even though he says in 1 Corinthians 13, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Right? Love is great, no doubt. But in this sense, he is using it in a different way. In that, love becomes the crowning grace of character. And so we define our terms properly, we will say this, love is the fruit of the Spirit. That affection that desires, okay, one is the desire because it's an inner affection, and pursues the highest good of another, right? Once again, it does not operate in isolation. Love is not just an attitude full of well-wishing. No, it actively pursues the highest good of another. We've, we've defined this several times already in our studies because we come up, um, we come up against love quite a bit. But it always pursues the good of another. In the life of the church, it always pursues that which is conducive to Christ's likeness. What helps your brother or sister in Christ draw close to God? What gives their attention, what puts their attention on Christ? Do you desire those things? Do you pursue those things? If you are doing those things and doing no harm to your neighbor, then you are practicing love. So even though it can be expressed in a variety of ways, the concept of love is rather simple. And we would say, Again, the, the most outstanding of all Christian virtues. As the Lord Himself says, all men will know that you are dis- my disciples if you love one another. And so we have all these ways in which we know love is expressed. Love is patient. Love is kind. And in here, very importantly, is love is mentioned as its own article of clothing. Remember, not, not, not in isolation, but distinct from the others. Paul is drawing on a well-known, familiar uh, way of life illustration to draw our attention to this. So, again, if you lived in the first century, talked about this before, instead of wearing jeans, everyone sort of wore dresses or, or tunics, an article of clothing that essentially went over your head. You probably had a couple holes your arms could poke out of it, and then it went down to your feet. That is that is your tunic. So you're familiar with these passages that say, gird your loins, or as Peter says, gird the loins of your mind, right? So if you were, if you were to be ready for action or ready for battle, you had to take this tunic and kind of tie it up so that it was free from being caught on anything. So you don't want to trip in battle and hurt yourself or get someone else killed. So you would tie it up. That's what it meant to gird your loins. So in this sense, love is the sash that, that girds that. It was a very familiar, well-known piece of clothing. So he's saying, beyond all this, or on top of all this, this tunic of grace that surrounds you, that clothes you, that is emblematic of godliness, put on love. I mean, if you if you went to you grew up in Sunday school or children's church, you had the flannel graph, and we all if you're familiar with that, you have flannel graph Jesus. You had flannel graph Jesus. He always wore his white tunic, and then typically over that, he had a blue sash. Sometimes it was blue sash Sunday, and if you had the if you had the complete pack, you had red sash Jesus as well, and then you had the glorified Jesus, which was just Jesus dressed in glorious white. So it's a very familiar piece of clothing. And that is how love is meant to operate in the life of of the Christian. So he says this, beyond all these things, put on love. Very deliberate. He says, which is, so this is how love operates, which is the perfect bond of peace. Or you could say 
the, the bond or the girdle of perfectness or of maturity. Depending on your translation, it will say different things. And so translation is actually a pretty important part to understanding this text. So it's better, it's better render, rendered that which holds together, right? It's a, it's a bond of perfectness or a bond of maturity where the NASB says perfect bond of unity. So above all that, put on love. That is Paul's instruction. So what this sash does is it puts everything together. So all these things that Paul mentions, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, let all these things be held together by love. I think it was Plato that said this, said two things cannot be held together without a third. They must have some bond of union. And the fairest bond is that which completely fuses and is fused into the things which are bound. Now, I won't go to great lengths interpreting Plato, but let's just say that here he seems to be correct in his assessment. There has to be a third thing. And that third thing here that puts everything together and sustains everything, all these Christian virtues, all these godly characteristics, is love. And so, of course, we would say, as Paul says, in everything you do in serving one another, let love be the motivation. Let love be the tie that binds. And do not do any of these things without love being present. You don't want to do any of these things without love being present. You don't want, you don't want these, these actions to be hypocritical and heartless. No, you want them to be born from an attitude of great love and affection toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's how it's all held together. It's love that ties it all together. And so moving on, he also says this, it's the, it's the perfect bond of unity. That is to say, when love is present, it is the bond that leads to perfection. Now, we're not talking about moral perfection here as if you love enough and at some point in your life you're never going to commit a sin. Not at all. The idea here is that when love is present and binds together all these things that Paul has just mentioned, it will lead to spiritual maturity. You will be mature in Christ. And it's always the Christian's prerogative to grow. We, are, we have been grafted into Christ. Much of the Christian life can be, can be likened to a, a plant or a, or a fruit tree. And so we're always caring for it. We let the light in. We water it. We make sure it's in good soil. And we watch over it. We give it time. We don't expect everything to happen at once. And so it leads to maturity. That is the goal. It's the goal of the church to be mature. So that we are at some point presented as a spotless bride for God our Savior. So all that works together. And you think about the difficulty of these things. Because we've said before, for a time, it's easy to fake these things. It is easy to fake compassion. It's easy to fake kindness. It's easy to fake humility. False humility, I think, runs rampant in the church for various reasons. But after a time, if, if love is not the foundation, if love is not the motivation, if love is not the tie, the glue, as it were, that binds all these things together, you're eventually going to get tired of pretending. It is love that keeps us from being hypocritical in these things. It is love that gives us our greatest motivation because we understand the depth of God's love for us and we desire to lavish that upon others. And so do not let your compassion or patience or forgiveness be of a loveless quality because then it's just a counterfeit. Think about the, uh, the challenges that the Colossians were facing. We've talked about this. It's, it's rare to see four heresies afflict a church at one time and we know that at least four were afflicting the Colossian churches, the Colossian church. One, of course, was philosophy. The other was legalism. 
The other one was mysticism or experiences, visions. We've heard many professing Christians boast of those things. The other is what we would call asceticism or monasticism, the, the don't, don't touch, right? don't taste. Sort of a, a rigorous religious kind of self-denial where we think godliness means things that we withhold from ourselves. I don't do this. That means I'm godlier than you are. Right? A holier-than-thou a holier type of behavior. And I would say that based on what Paul is saying, all these things masqueraded. They were all counterfeits of love. And of course, what are all of these things without love? You could be the most legalistic, self-righteous person. If you don't, if you don't love, then what, is, what, what good is that? What good is legalism anyway? But legalism is inherently loveless because it rejects the love of God in imputing the righteousness of His Son to us. What about experiences? Oh, some people love to talk about all the experiences they've had, all the things that God has shown them, all the things that the Holy Spirit is revealing to them. But what is that? What is that so-called revelation if you have a loveless heart? doesn't really mean much. What about asceticism, self-denial? What good is discipline if it's a loveless discipline? If it's a kind of discipline that's just going to cause you to look down your nose at everyone else and act superior? Philosophy. What, what good is it if you can string words together? Words of human wisdom and you have a loveless heart. What good does that do? See, it's the same thing that Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 13. We read it today. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Tongues of angels seems a lot like mysticism to me. I can speak heavenly tongues, but if, what if I have not love? I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Have you ever thought of what that looks like, what that sounds like? A resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. There are few things in this world more irritating than the noise of a gong. There's, there's, there's no beauty to it, no melody. No one wants to hear that. No one wants to be in close proximity to a noisy gong. And that's all you are without love. Even if you try your best to show compassion and kindness, if you have a loveless heart, you're just going to be making noise. You're just going to be obnoxious to others because they're going to realize you have no love for them. You just like to hear your own voice. You're just a noisemaker. The gifts of prophecy, understanding all mysteries, all knowledge. He even goes on to say, though I feed the poor. See, there's compassion and kindness. And though I give my body to be burned, right? self-denial, but have not love, it profits me nothing. You see how essential love is to the Christian? See how essential love is to the church? I mean, that was the very problem facing the Ephesian church eventually when, uh, when, when Jesus has these letters written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. The first one, Ephesus, had that problem. And they did so many things right. And Jesus mentions them. But he says, I have this one thing against you, and it's a big one. Don't let this be characteristic of your church. You have lost your first love, or you have lost the love you have had at first. They, they used to excel in love, and now they don't have it. Well, they have discernment. So what? You don't have love. Well, we hate the Nicolaitans. You have no love. And so egregious is that offense to Christ that He is ready to come and visit them in judgment. He's ready to take them out. So do not use these virtues as a covering for a lack of love. Because if you lack love and try to demonstrate these things, they are not going to hold up. 
It is love that facilitates them. It is love that helps them grow. Remember, we are looking for the maturing of all these things in your compassion, in your patience, in, in forgiveness. There is a maturity to those things. And, they, and maturity does not come about unless you have love. Of course, love first for God, above all things, and then love for your brother. So important is this, Paul has this to say to the Romans. Chapter 13, verses 8-10. through 10. Listen to this. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it's like if I left out anything else, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Right? If you love, you are doing what everything that God expects of you. Which stands to reason, if you do not love, you aren't doing anything of what God expects of you. That should be a pretty frightful place to be. That God has called us to this. He has called us to love. And we refuse Him through a loveless heart? I would say that is not a good place for any believer to be. And so if we are truly loving, we, we should show all of these things. Paul has already mentioned it. Paul, on the front lines of this gospel battle, he says that he desires their hearts to be knit together in love. So he's, he's bringing this up again, as he has from chapter 2 already. Listen to verse 19 of chapter 2. And he's warning us against these certain heresies that have taken root in the church one of which is this mysticism, this worship of angels. But listen to verse 19. He says that they are not holding fast to the head, that is Christ, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. So he's talking about this connective tissue, this, this connectivity of the entire body, that is the church. And what is it, we ask, that connects this all together? And that, of course, is love. It's that bonding agent that holds together all these spiritual graces, facilitates them, and not only facilitates them, but feeds them so we use them as a mature man in Christ. See, none of these things are going to mature without love. This is the goal of the church. This, this very word, speaking of perfection, is a word that's, that, that points us to maturity, fullness, that something has reached its goal. And we would say that the church is never going to reach its goal without love. It's never going to be recognizable as the salt of the earth and the light of the world if it is loveless. And one thing to add in here, there are, there are going to be seasons we recognize that. There is grace. There is mercy here from the gospel. There will be times where we go through seasons where our affections for people are not what they should be. Even where our affections for God are not what they should be. We are going to struggle in that area. And I, and, I, and I don't want to discourage you from doing what is good and what is right. Yes, we all, we've just gotten done saying, well, yes, it will be hypocritical. But yes, we go through seasons as well where it is hard to link our affections or to even have a love for people. But I would say this, do good works anyway. Do what is good. Do what is right, even if you're not feeling it for the moment. Because we would say that even God, even God can use works done in hypocrisy to accomplish much good. So just because you ain't feeling it, don't stop doing it. Don't stop doing what's right and good because there's little to no stimulation of your inner affections. 
but also realize that God in His timing can, and I, w- I say to the true saint, will restore genuine love and affection that bind those works together. It's just a little encouragement for that. But that is love. And love is that which is indispensable to the church reaching its goal of proclaiming the Gospel and of putting on this continual heart of compassion all the way from compassion to forgiveness. Can't do it without love. So here's the second thing. We have love. Now we have peace. He says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And we think, well, this word, this word let. So we have an instant reminder that says, well, don't do anything that prevents that from happening. Don't put any stumbling block in the way which prevents you or prevents the peace of Christ from ruling in your hearts. We were called to peace. Scripture says just that. As believers, we are called to peace. We have the peace of God. And what a wonderful statement this is, to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. If you read Paul at all, you'll find out how important peace is to him. Peace plays an enormous part of his letters. I believe it's nearly 50 times he mentions peace, often in the beginning and end of his letters where he says grace and peace. He desires peace for his readers, peace for these believers that he cares so intimately for. Earlier in Colossians, and I believe it's talking about the same kind of peace, in chapter 1, if you want to turn there very quickly, chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 20, he says this, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So Christ, through his sacrificial death on the cross, has brought reconciliation, and through that reconciling work, he has made peace. Christ has made peace. On many levels, we understand. He has brought peace between God and man, between man and God, so we're no longer at war with God, but also He brings peace between man and man. I think we forget that often. Is that outside of Christ, man can simply war with other men. Man is at war with himself, and yet, this reconciling work that Christ brings, we can actually have peace with one another. We have peace with one another and peace with God. That's why Later on in the letter, we've read this before, but Paul talks about there being no difference. He talks about the Jew, the Gentile. He talks about uh, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in in all. So there is no distinction. That's That's why a Jew can worship alongside with a Greek, which before would have been unthinkable. It would have been seen as a defiling act for a Jew to do such a thing. And yet now Christ has cleansed all through the blood of His cross, and now we can worship with one another, but worship one another, importantly, in peace. So what is this peace we say that Paul is talking about? It's not just a cessation of hostilities, nor is it what we, what we commonly understand as peace, like an inner peace, right? A tranquility, the sense that all is good and settled. Although those two things are included. When we talk about peace... This is a great theme in our teaching here. When we talk about peace, we're talking about shalom. Paul is drawing from his knowledge of the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. When he says peace, he also understands it from the Scriptures. When we have shalom, that is life as it should be. Wholeness. Completion. 
right? Things are in order. And we say, well, what is, what is ultimately the shalom of the believer? When we say all, all life is as it should be, what are we talking about? Well, according to Scripture, what is that one characteristic of life when all is as it should be? I would say that when God is fellowshipping with man, that is shalom. When man is able to draw near to God by grace through faith, when that fellowship is restored and enjoyed, that fundamentally is life as it should be. So when we don't have that, when we don't have peace, then life is all as, is all as it should not be. Because God is still at war with us. Hostilities are still present. So you see how all that all works together. And you should have anything but inner peace and tranquility. So this is what Paul is talking about. So let's understand it in its context here. He said, let the peace of Christ, or let the shalom of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. So we have shalom. Okay. So look at this phrase, rule in your hearts. When he says rule in your hearts, he is talking about a peace that governs and directs our lives. Right? Knowing with the knowledge that our relationship with God has been reconciled, reconciled and restored and is as it should be. So when it comes to the, when it comes to Christian living and navigate, and as the church navigates all of its challenges, all of its trials and tribulations, in the various directions we have to, to go and the various decisions we have to make, the question becomes, what does a person who is, at, who is at peace with God do in these situations? Well, we look to the reality of our peace with God. This word rule means to arbitrate or govern or to control the activity of someone. It refers to acting as an umpire. Acting as an umpire, think baseball when they call the pitches. It's used in Colossians 16 in the negative sense. He says, let no one act as your judge. Right? Let no one judge you. Let no one declare you unworthy of the prize of the gospel. Right? Because Christ has reconciled you to God. So let no one come in and act as an umpire and say, no, you have no access to God. You are not at peace with God. Do not, do not let anyone condemn you for an apparent lack of all these things that they're claiming you should have if you are really to be a Christian. No, it is Christ, as Paul says earlier in this book, who has qualified us. It is Christ who qualifies us for an inheritance. So don't let anyone come in and disqualify you. Don't let these false presumptions direct you. Don't let their intimidation keep you from latching on to this ultimate prize that is Christ himself. So what he's saying here is you govern your life as one who has peace with God. This is talking about an inf a powerful influencing factor in your life. And it will be this peace of God that has this profound influence, right? Not a peace based on feeling, not a peace based on intuition, but this is a peace that is based on a concrete reality. It's the same thing we draw from Philippians 4. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. Paul isn't talking about an intuition. He's not talking about a, a, a feeling of peace. I know sometimes we say, I have a peace about things. And if, you, and if God really has given you a peace about something, then praise God. You have a peace about something. But what Paul is talking about is entirely different. He's talking about the concrete reality of the shalom that we have with God based on what Christ has done. So when he says, let this, let this peace of Christ rule in your hearts, he is saying that in Christ, 
life is as it should be, and direct your hearts based on that reality. Because it's a concrete reality. It's, it's done. It's fixed. In Christ, you are at peace with God. So what is consistent with that peace? What is, that, what is consistent with that shalom that Christ gives? That's the question we ask. What fosters this peace? What promotes this peace that I have in my relationship to God in Christ? What feeds it? What grows it? What strengthens it? Let that direct you. You could ask further, what is conducive to that order? What supports my, what supports life in Christ? What expresses love, goodness, grace? What is it that shows that Christ is supreme and sufficient? Because if you believe that, if you believe that Christ is supreme, if you believe that Christ is sufficient, if you are satisfied in the Lord Jesus, trust me, you are where you should be. Even if, even if continuing sanctifying work needs to take place, you are right where you need to be. So let that rule. Let that be the umpire. And do not let any other mitigating factor, whether internal or external, say otherwise. It's amazing here. We, ha- we, have, a, we have a fixed standard. And yet we let all kinds of, of emotions and intuitions get in the way. But what is it? What is it that supports this peace that I have? This real, concrete peace. Because if it's not of God, what's going to happen? It's going to undermine. It's going to undermine that peace. It's going to attempt to throw your life into spiritual chaos. And Paul is saying, don't let anything come in and usurp the very peace that Christ gives. Uphold it. So love is the means by which this peace is upheld and peace is the evidence of love's presence. If you have a group of people who love one another, who are always pursuing the highest good for one another, guess what you're going to have? You're not going to have chaos. You're not going to have uproar. You're not going to have gossip and backbiting. You're going to have peace. That is, the church is going to be functioning exactly as it was intended by God to function. When peace rules in your hearts, we know that love plays a prominent position there in the life of the church. So peace will not come. Peace is the inevitable result of the prominence of love in the life of the body. So it stands to reason that the church should do whatever it takes together to support that and to, to see that grow. Peace is a good thing. Peace is from God. This is the very peace of Christ. So recognize its counterfeits. Recognize all those things that masquerade as peace. But ask yourself, is this the peace that Christ gives? And that will help you in your direction further. So let's go to this next one. He says, he says to which indeed you were called to one body. Well, you were called to peace. That's the to which. Indeed, you were called to one body. And I think this helps us remember that these things are not done in isolation. We do not put on these things alone. We do not, you realize that all these things require another person to do. You can't, you can't show compassion or patience to thin air. You don't forgive nobody. I mean, unless you've, unless you've, uh, unless you've accepted this baloney about forgiving yourself, then I suppose you can forgive in isolation. But no, we are to forgive one another. We are to, we are to love one another. We are to be humble toward one another. None of these things happen in a vacuum or in isolation. They are transactional and they are corporate things. And so we remember, and so he's reminding us, hey, when you practice all these things, remember you were called to one body in practicing them. You are a part of a whole, right? You are, you are, even though he's, even though some of these instructions 
are, are in the singular, he reminds us that no, you are, you are part of the body of Christ. You are called to one body. So pursue these things, promote these things together. This is, this is the real unity that the church is after. Not a, not a flippant unity at the, at the expense of truth. But this is the unity that comes when we pursue love and truth together. That's why we go back to verse 14 where we read the perfect bond of unity. You were indeed called in one body. And of course, the head of that body is Christ. And so, when, when, the head, when we are connected, when we are holding fast to the head and pursuing all these things together, we show who truly is in charge. We are showing who truly is to be loved and exalted and glorified. And that is Jesus Christ. But we do that as a body, not in isolation. And I would say that in the context of the Colossian church, if you were trying to practice Christianity in isolation, it was much more easy to fall into the temptations of philosophy and legalism and all the various other things that Paul mentioned. And then in closing, he says this. So we've talked about love, we've talked about peace, and finally we talked about, we talk about thankfulness. He says, and be thankful. It almost sounds like a PS. He's like, oh, by the way, by the way, don't forget to be thankful. I mean, you think, wow, all these virtues. I mean, we're just, we're doing really well. We go, we start from compassion. Remember, compassion is the word that describes God more than any other word in the Old Testament. Wow, I'm, I'm putting on godliness. I'm really pursuing it. I'm forgiving. I'm loving. Oh, by the way, by the way, be thankful. I mean, we've all seen that kind of Christian. Maybe, maybe, maybe you are that kind of Christian. You are exemplary in all of these things, and yet you just complain constantly. It's always grumbling. It's always, as, as, as it's described often in the Old Testament of the Israelites, you are murmuring constantly. Just making noise. You can't do anything without an eye roll and a complaint. And so I think Paul understands that, but this is what happens. This is what often befalls the believer. And so he says, oh, by the way, be thankful. And even, even the way he, he, he articulates it here, be is better understood as become. Become thankful, which points to the fact that repentance is needed to go from a state of thankfulness or complaining to full-blown thankfulness. So thankfulness is something we should always be pursuing. We should think about things to be thankful for. When I was first discipled, and uh, going through the text with, 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 the, with the young man discipling me at the time, we were talking about prayer, and I was uh, addressing to him my struggles with, with just a regular prayer life, and he said, he said very, very, uh, very compassionately, he said, you know, if you struggle with prayer, just start by thanking God. Because if you really think about it, you know, think that's air you're breathing? You're breathing on your own? Independent of the life that God has given you? Independent from the God who has created oxygen for you to breathe? I mean, you, it starts immediately, right? You can start, you, you can just start thinking and come up with a multiplicity of things to thank, for which to thank God. That should not be a difficult thing. But we do not want to be, as a church, a thankless people. I think that was one of the major pitfalls of the people of Israel. Even before, even before they were delivered from bondage in Egypt. They were a complaining bunch. And then they got delivered from, from Egypt and they're out in the, they're out in the desert. And they start complaining again. Oh, that we were back in Egypt because life was so great in Egypt. I missed the bricks. I missed gathering the straw and the searing heat and being muddy and being dirty, and being a slave all day, man, that was the good life. 
And it sounds ridiculous from our point of view, and it should, but that is where thanklessness leads. If you do not have a thankful heart, you have the mind of a slave. And so there's a very important connection here with thankfulness and peace. You realize that it was partly due to complaining that 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 generation was not allowed into the promised land. They were complaining, but what was their complaint? God is not with us. God has abandoned us. That is the opposite of the ideal of shalom. Because when we say that we are in shalom, we are recognizing that God is with His people. And so, to be thankless, and its worst sense, is to deny shalom. It is to deny the peace of God. It is to reject the rule of the peace that Christ delivers to us. So there's a very intimate connection there. And that is why he says, do not forget to be thankful. So it's not merely a tagline. It is fundamental to these Christian garments. It is fundamental to even the the, the sash of love that holds it all together. It should should strike us as very odd for a loving person to be a, a thankless person. So we see that important connection there then we are we are thankful we preserve peace and we help one another grow we find our unity and purpose we find harmony in relationship we find many blessings blessings that we did not even formally call to mind because we didn't bother at first but if we are thankful we are deliberate in calling the blessings and gracings the graces of god to the forefront Just thinking of this i don't know if you guys saw this on the news there was this pastor in in kansas city uh recently i think it was last sunday he was he was complaining to his congregation that they didn't give enough so that he could buy an expensive watch. He's just up there in the pulpit complaining about his people. Imagine, you know, that's what an example that is to set. You know? So um, your, your, your ministers especially should not be thankless people who are, who are always complaining, but, but shouldn't be characteristic of any of us either. We shouldn't be people who are always complaining because nothing disturbs the peace like complaining. Nothing calls God's faithfulness and goodness into question like complaining does. I mean, you'll find that once you start complaining, oh, it's so easy. It's just, it's just like a machine gun. Just one complaint after the other. It, be, it easily becomes a way of life. It easily becomes basically an, a personal idiosyncrasy. It is hard to complain in moderation, I'll tell you that. Most people who complain, who are given to complaining, who are given to thanklessness, are looking for things to complain about. And that is a trained, developed disposition that the church needs to be on guard against. I mean, I think we do that in, even in a Sunday gathering. I think we do that sometimes when we visit a church. I mean, we, what happens, especially if you're that kind of Christian, you go, you spend the time, you listen to the sermon, you sing some songs, maybe take communion, and then you leave, and what's the first thing on your mind? It's not the way I would have done it. That's how it starts. That's not the way I would have done it. Because you're the standard of everything that happens in here. It's easy to complain. Easy to complain based on our preferences. To be discontent. And then that leads to complaining about other people's foibles and weaknesses. When the thankful person thanks God for the spiritual maturity and growth and development that Christians in this place experience, the thankful person looks for the working of God in the lives of his saints. The thankful Christian recognizes when that work happens and rejoices with others. Do you see this? True thankfulness isn't done in isolation either. But it's so easy to complain 
once we start and we stop thinking about God's grace and blessing. Complain about our preferences. We complain about others. We complain about how bad the world is. And at the same time, we don't lift a finger to change anything or do anything about it. That's hypocrisy. But see, that is a, that's a loveless heart as well. So it's very important to understand Paul's exhortation to be thankful. That our thankfulness, developing such a habit of thankfulness that it tends to overwhelm all of the other complaints that we would have. I'm not saying we're never going to have grievances. I'm not saying that complaints are, that all complaints are illegitimate. What I'm saying is do not let your, your discontent overshadow all the, the causes for rejoicing in the midst of God's people. Think about what Paul says in Romans 1.21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. They have a thankful heart. And look at what their thankless heart led to. And you'll find too, I was thinking about this, people that complain the most typically struggle to perceive God's will for their lives. But we have an antidote to that. Listen to this. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says this, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know what the will of God is for your life? Be thankful. Yeah, but you didn't see that one coming. Be thankful. Especially if you're prone to complaining. God's will for you is to stop complaining and to give thanks. That's why Ephesians 5.4 says, let there be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Again, we will find that pattern. If you are a thankless person, if you struggle to be thankful or rejoice in anything, you will be given to coarse jesting and filthiness and silly talk which are not fitting. Which is if you are thankful, say so. The interesting thing here is that the the thankfulness that Paul describes is an outward manifestation of praise. So that's the first thing. If you are thankful, give thanks vocally. Give thanks. Articulate it. Don't hold the thanks inside. Actually, say thanks. Like Ephesians 5.20, always giving thanks for all the things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. We talk about giving thanks that is fitting. That is appropriate for the Christian. Here's, the, here's another thing. Give thanks congregationally. That is, give thanks with others. If none of this stuff operates in a vacuum, then why should thankfulness? So if you are thankful, tell others what you are thankful about. I mean, you may have that person saved in your phone, and, and they call you up, and you look at it, oh man, this person, Jonathan's calling. What is he going to complain about? Oh, every time he grumbles, you know, don't be that person. <laughs> Someone sees you coming. You got something to say, like, oh, there comes that person. I love being around them. They're always so thankful about things. They always are able to recognize and acknowledge what God is doing, even though they may have lots of stuff to complain about. Oh, but they want to give thanks. I mean, that's the kind of Christian I would like to be. Lots of things to complain about. But wouldn't we, shouldn't we rather give thanks and make sure that God gets the glory rather than the grumbling? So we give thanks vocally, congregationally, Psalm 22, 22, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Thirdly and finally, give thanks normally. Yeah, normally. Thankfulness should be a normal part of the Christian life. A normal activity. Psalm 34, 1, I will extol the Lord at all times. At all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I mean, that is a, that is a high calling. I wonder how many of us in here can say that where, where praise is just such a normal thing. 
Thankfulness is such a, a normal thing. It's always on our lips that rather than cursing, rather than calling God's faithfulness into, faithfulness into question, we are praising Him. We are looking for reasons to praise Him because He is that good. And that's what thankfulness reminds us of. Is that God is so good. He is so gracious to us. We who are men, we who are but dust and ashes, and He is good to us. And all we can do is complain. So we I think the saying is, is this, we, uh, what, how, how does the saying go? We, is that the sun can burn our eyes from 93 million miles away, and yet we casually stroll in the presence of its maker and complain. It's amazing. So I hope we would at least take some time to, to consider that. That if the sun burns and we can't even look at it, How much more humble should we be before the presence of the living God and give Him thanks and give Him praise that is due His name rather than our, rather than simply petty complaints. And if we do complain, right, we know that the Lord will hear those complaints, that we go to Him because He is, we complain to God because He is good, not because we're questioning that goodness. So all those things today, we can close here, move on in our text next week. But as we prepare our hearts for prayer, think about how those things are being developed. Think about love and how it ties together all of these other Christian characteristics and how it matures them. Think about how peace directs our life. That, 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 that in Christ, life is as it should be. And that we have a de- definitive, gracious rule in our hearts. Also, think about your own heart and whether or not it is thankful or whether you are given to complaining rather than recognizing the abundant grace that God gives us in all of His goodness. I would think that it would be hard to complain after that. But in all these things, we uh, submit to God. We submit them to God by prayer. So let's go to Him and ask for His help. Father, thank You again for our time in Your Word, even though we land the plane abruptly, as it were. But uh, we see that these things are, are so important. They're so indispensable to living lives, not only as individual Christians, but as we live life in the one body to which we are called, that we are your people. We are the body of Christ and we want to be able to live our lives as exemplary Christians, as putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, to put on a heart of all these things, that they would truly be reflective of of the change that the gospel has brought inside of us. That they would not merely be done externally, but that they would be truly reflective of the work your Spirit continues to do. May we be kind, may we be compassionate, may we be forgiving and gentle and humble. May we forgive, may we be loving, may love be that which binds all of these things together. May everything we do be from loving affections, from the heart, where we know we're not not mindless, heartless robots. We are new men in Christ who desire to see you glorified in in the very way that we treat one another. So help that be the attitude. And and Lord, if we do need an attitude adjustment, I pray that you would do your work. I pray that you would humble us so that we would that we would excel in love toward one another. And however we do so imperfectly, we know we struggle with these things at times. Um, and the execution isn't always what it should be, but Lord, we're reminded and encouraged that we have an abiding standard. We have your great love for us. Your great love which calls us to be sons of God. And may that be an ever-present reminder of, of how we are to love. We are to love as beloved sons, called into your family by your grace alone. Help us, Lord, to have 
and enjoy your peace. That your peace is something concrete and fixed, not something we have to wonder about, but something we can rejoice in the fact that it is given so plentifully. That even when it comes to difficult trials in life and decision making, that, that our starting point, Father, is life is as it should be because we have life in you. And Lord, finally, for thankful hearts, help us not be those who do things with grumbling and complaining, but to do so willingly with regard to all that you've done for us. Lord, we struggle so often in these things, myself included, um, but, but remind us, Lord, that we are your people, and that if we are your people, we are a joyful people, and that we should be giving thanks regularly and encouraging one another to do so. So in all these things, Father, we commit them to you. We desire that these things would be true of us in abundant measure, so that we can be truly salt and light, full of the love of God and one another without hypocrisy, and to do so continually. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.